Let us hear God's word. Romans 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Now, maybe you noticed the sermon title here today, a somewhat provocative way of saying it, and yet that's exactly what Paul is saying to us here. Sex is given, in some ways, as punishment for our sin. And so we will develop Paul's thought here. Now, this is obviously a very needed topic and point to be made in our culture today. But I will do what I can here to try to address the matter and yet be mindful of sensitive ears, too. There is a lot that could be said, and uh, a lot more maybe should be said, but I'm going to limit it in certain ways here today. Well, thus far, as we have seen since verse 18, Paul has expanded on God's wrath. God's wrath is revealed on a daily basis to everyone, ultimately, Because all of us suppress the truth. It's not just the Gentiles who do this. But all of us suppress the truth in some way or another that God exists and certain aspects of his character. But God has made himself clearly known to everyone simply from the things that he has made. And so no one can say that they are an atheist or an agnostic or a deist. We can't even say that we're a practical atheist. And again, it's just simple. Go outside and look. We had the benefit here just in the last few weeks to go to some of the most amazing sites that our country has. The Grand Canyon and the Redwood Forest and Pikes Peak and so on and so forth. And just one brief glimpse, and you're like, oh, look at who God is. Okay? No one can say that we don't know certain aspects about him. One glimpse at the mountain peaks and you're like, oh, look, he is all powerful. He is eternal. He is good. Even beautiful, we could say. He is just. He is holy. He is all knowing. He is infinite. He is unchanging and, and even other things. 
these things are seen simply by what God has made. And so therefore, all religions, all worldviews, all philosophies, all aberrant views within the church are examples and efforts to suppress the truth that we all know to be true. Another way of putting it, then, is how Paul ends verses 22 and 23. It's just another way of setting up idols. Whether we're talking about actual figurines or idols of the mind or people or things or our feelings or ultimately ourselves, all these things are efforts to replace God with ourselves and with something that he has made. Now, these behaviors ultimately end in the final judgment, in hell, in eternal condemnation. But that's not Paul's emphasis here. His point is God's wrath is manifested every day against us for our idolatry. And so last time we looked at verses 24, 26, and 28, that key word, God gives us over. Paul is speaking of God giving us over to various sins. And you might say that Paul is taking us deeper. He's taking us to a more foundational level that we should have in regard to our sin. And you might remember, I used a couple examples. Typically, we think of falling into a particular sin, and so therefore there are consequences for that. And that's certainly true. And so if we say we've fallen into a premarital sexual relationship, uh, some of the consequences are STDs or unwanted pregnancy or we don't trust people anymore or whatever it is. And that's certainly true. The other example you may recall I gave was lying on application. And there are consequences for doing that. We lose our job or, or we don't get the job in the first place or something like that. And all of that is true. Lying, sexual sin, these are indication, these will result in consequences. But Paul is saying that if you do these things, if you break the seventh commandment, if you break the ninth commandment, that's an indication of a prior sin. God is giving you over to those sins because of your relationship with him not being in a good place. And as I've said at different times over the years, ultimately all of our sins are connected to our relationship with God. So if we are falling into these sins or other sins, it's because our relationship with God is not in a good place. Okay, And so <clears throat> um, Paul is, again, taking us back to the beginning, you could say, in regard to these things. Now, Another point I mentioned here last time is that when we think about it, uh, everything that we do is sinful in one way or another. Even the best things we do have sinful elements in them. And so we deserve God's wrath all the time. He should be giving us over to all kinds of sins, and yet he doesn't. He gives us over to specific sins. But he could give us over to far more. And so we see God's goodness in the midst of his wrath here in Romans 1. And so when we have health problems or accidents or certain events in nature happen or evil in the world that happen around us or some of the sins that uh, Paul lists here, 
it should remind us that we should have far worse things happening to us. And when God sends his wrath in the form of these sins, okay, it's in many ways a sign of his goodness too. And so when we consider how God cares for our needs, food, shelter, clothing, health, jobs, relationships, and other things, we see God's grace and his goodness in the midst of his wrath. And this is true for the believer and the unbeliever, at least to some degree. And none of these good things are ever deserved. And so to put it another way, we are far worse sinners than we want to admit. But God is far more good than we often admit and recognize. And so therefore then, Paul's point, back to verse 18, because we suppress the truth about God, because we do not glorify the God we know, verse 21, because we do not thank him for the blessings that he gives to us, then some of the consequences are futile thinking, darkened hearts, foolishness, idolatry. Is this true of Gentiles, unbelievers? Absolutely, but it's also true of Israel and of us too. Paul now adds the next point, and he says, God also judges by handing us over to sexual sins, verses 24 and 25, to sexual perversions, verses 26 and 27, and all manner of hatred toward our neighbor, verses 28 to 32. So again, as we proceed through this list of vices, remember If you see them in your life, it is an indication that God is judging you for your idolatry, for suppressing the truth, for not glorifying him, for not thanking him. He's upset at you. His wrath is revealed. But for the people of God, it's also a sign of his goodness because he's wanting us to wake up and return to him. So, that's our overall point. Now let's look at the specifics of these verses. Verse 24. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And so again, because of the prior sins, verses 18 to 23, God gives over. Now you recall I mentioned last time that this word to give over does not mean that God just lets us go to do as we please. It's not like releasing us into outer space to float over uh, wherever we want to. This is a deliberate judgment by God. He is specifically sending these things as wrath for our sins of rejecting him in some way. It is very personal. Now, because of this, we need to also recognize that not all of us are given over to every one of these sins. Now, if we speak on the heart level, all of us have broken the seventh commandment. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. All of us have committed sexual sins in the heart. But not all of us have done it outwardly. And I think that's Paul's emphasis here. Not everyone has been given over to sexual promiscuous kinds of sins. But some have, of course. And it's because of our idolatry. 
Now, <clears throat> Paul, in some ways, maybe you wish he would have said this a little more clearly, but he does use the term unclean, the lust of the heart, and then especially dishonoring the body. And as you put all three of these uh, clauses together, it becomes clear he is talking about sexual sin. Though, again, maybe you wish he would have said it a bit more clearly. But when he uses the term unclean, he is talking about impure things, defilement, indecency. But he's not talking about ceremonial uncleanness, like touching a dead thing. He is referring to sexual sin here. And so the next part, the lust of the heart, the desires of the heart, again, this helps make it more clear what he means. Now, we can have desires that are not sexually oriented. Uh, we can have lusts that aren't necessarily related to this issue. Uh, but typically, that is what the Bible is referring to. So if we were to use some of the uh, language of our culture today, okay, isn't this what we're hearing all around us? Hey, love the one you're with, right? That famous song with that refrain over and over again. Uh, the focus on appearance. Hey, we went by many billboards along the way on our trip, and some of them are very sensual. Uh, adult stores and this kind of thing, right? People and their dress. And it's all around us. We are told to live in the moment. We are told that two consenting adults means we can do whatever we want. But Paul is saying, you're just following the lust of your heart. And it's an indication that God is giving over to these sinful things. Now, the third line here, the third part of it says, dishonoring our bodies, dishonoring ourselves. Right? Now remember back in verse 21, we don't honor God. We don't glorify him. And so here now, Paul is saying, you're not honoring your body. You're not honoring yourself. Now, of, of the three, this one makes it most clear that we're referring to the sexual sin. Okay? The, the Old Testament talks about uncovering our nakedness. And it talks, obviously, about Adam and Eve feeling shame after they sinned, and so on. Well, <clears throat> for some people, anyway, when they have rejected God for an idol, God hands them over to these kinds of behaviors, and they will seek to have no shame as they uncover themselves and someone else. But they're left without honor. Sexual sin has, you might say, an added component to it. If you steal a candy bar from the store, it doesn't leave you with the same kind of shame as having an affair. Dishonoring your body doesn't happen when you take something from Walmart. And don't pay for it. But if you're sleeping around, there is a, a totally different level of shame that goes along with it. There are both sins, but there's something more here when it comes to these kinds of things. In our culture, though, we are constantly being told that uh, the more skin, the better. And uh, it boasts in it. And our culture's trying to ignore the shame that comes along with sensual sin, but it can't do it, not in the end. Well, let's bring in now uh, the next verse. Historically, sexual sin has been associated with religion, the fertility cults. Now, it's not only that. There's plenty of sexual sin that has nothing to do with fertility cults, even in the ancient world, but 
much of it was associated with those things. Okay? And so uh, in Israel, for example, you go to the Baal Temple, you would engage in some kind of ritual sex, and this would ensure fertility, more crops, more rain, a bigger harvest, healthy herds and flocks, more children. So there's debate. How, why does Paul put verse 25 here? It fits better before verse 24. It goes with verse 23, right? Well, I think this is why Paul puts it here. Because of our idolatry, verse 23, he hands us over to sexual sin. And note verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I think what Paul is saying here is that they've exchanged the truth that God governs all things. God is our fertility God. He's the one that controls the weather, the harvest, and, and any kind of fertility with either humans or animals. Okay? And that truth then is exchanged for the lie that I can go down to the local temple and I can engage in these things and somehow ensure that I'll have temporal blessings. That's why I think Paul <clears throat> puts it in this order. This is his primary emphasis. Okay. And when we behave in this manner, we are worshiping and serving something that God has made rather than God himself. Baal is nothing. Asherah is nothing. Venus is nothing. Aphrodite is nothing. Okay. All these other gods are nothing. All these fertility gods and goddesses. God is the true God. He is worthy of our blessing and our praise. And then Paul puts the, the emphatic end here. Amen. He alone is worthy of all of our praise. He is God. Not any of these other idols. God blesses. God provides. Okay. And so not these false gods. <clears throat> And so let us then trust in God, not manipulate the gods through sexual acts and other means. Okay? <clears throat> and so you might say it this way. False views of God lead to false views of sex. But any sexual act outside of the marriage degrades us. It dishonors God. It does not reflect the oneness that we are supposed to have as men and women in marriage. Even if you go to a church or a temple and try to give some theological justification for those things. All right, now maybe you're thinking, well, we don't do that today. And, okay, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. With birth control, with abortion, uh, sex outside of marriage is, for many, many people, just associated with pleasure has nothing to do with some kind of religious activity. But this is idolatry too, isn't it? Isn't this exchanging the truth that God is our ultimate source of joy and excitement and pleasure and something that he has made is, gives us more of those things? Isn't that also an exchange of truth for a lie? Most people do not engage in these things to try to help the gods in some way to provide and make our ends meet. But there are some who do. Obviously, you think of the prostitutes. But you also think about the welfare system. The more children you have, the more money you get. And so this is, can you say, our own form of Baalism? 
sponsored by the government. But whatever the reason, sexual sin degrades. It dishonors ourselves. It dishonors others. It is unclean. You may think it's fun or fulfilling. Fulfill some hole in your life. Meet your needs. But ultimately, the opposite is true. Sexual diseases. It's hard to trust people. Unwanted pregnancies. But notice again, this is an exchange of truth for a lie. Because you're looking for those things to fulfill your needs rather than looking to God. And so when you're given over to sexual sins, it's because you've turned away from God. And he's punishing you for doing that. And then as you engage in these things and you try to use them to satisfy your needs, again, this is just an example of that earlier sin of replacing God for something else. Let me read a moment here from uh, James Montgomery Boyce. And uh, this was printed in 91. So um, this is even true today then with the homosexual movement and the transgender movement. But here's what he says. Not long ago, CBS television ran an hour-long special on the freewheeling lifestyle in California interviewing particularly many women who had been caught up in it. Interestingly, their near-universal opinion was that they had been betrayed by the sexual revolution. As one woman said, all men want from us is our bodies. We've had enough of that to last a lifetime. Isn't it the case that these women were expressing precisely what Paul says when he observes that those who act this way have exchanged the truth of God for a lie? Let's say it clearly, as the world is beginning to recognize, at least in some ways, the new hedonism and the sexual revolution are a deception. And we are certainly hearing the same from the gay movement and the trans movement here today. All right, now, remember the point. When anyone falls prey to these kinds of sins... And it's an indication that God is judging you for rejecting him already. Your relationship with God is not good. And so like David, in Psalm 51 that we sang just a little bit ago, okay, let's repent. (coughs) Excuse me. Paul's emphasis is that sexual sin is God's punishment. But the broader biblical point, especially as we get into chapter 3, right, it's also God's wake-up call. If you find yourself stuck in these things, okay, use this as God's trumpet blasting in your ears saying, Hey, <clears throat> remember me. Return to me. Okay, repent of your sins. Okay, read the word. Pray. These kinds of things use the means of grace. The question is, are we going to listen? If we don't listen to God's call to repentance when he gives us over to various sins, then he often gives us over to even worse sins. And that's clearly the pattern that we see as we come to verse 26. Sexual sin, you might say, is a natural activity but it's done in the wrong way. It must be done within marriage. But 
sexual things are not inherently wrong. But as we come to verse 26, we cannot say that. Because sexual perversions are inherently wrong. Period. And so verse 26 then, For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. All right, vile passions, your translation may say something a little different there. Excuse me, literally, it's passions of dishonor. And so it's not just her bodies are dishonored, but the passions are dishonorable. It's even worse than sexual promiscuity. Now, when Paul says that the women exchange the natural for what is unnatural, this has raised a bunch of questions, understandably. What does he mean by this? Well, he answers the question immediately in verse 27. Notice his conjunctions here. Likewise, also. So we're talking about the same thing in verse 26 and 27. So verse 27, likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So the women were leaving the natural use of the man and exchanging that for other women. So verse 26 is actually easily understood as you look at verse 27. Now, it is likely the case that Paul emphasizes men here instead of women because male homosexuality was far more common in the first century than female. And so that's likely why he emphasized it. Um, And so he expounds on it here uh, just in how he describes it. But the man is leaving the natural use of the woman the way God made things to be, and they're lusting for other men going against God's plan. As the somewhat rude way of saying it, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Pretty straightforward. But there's another point here. And your translation may show this. And the New King James translates the word male for men and female for women. So it uses men and women here. But the Greek words are actually male and female. Your translation may do that. My Bible has a footnote indicating that. I think Paul is being very deliberate because homosexual activity uses the male and female external parts, but they're not acting like men and women. They're totally going against what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And so Paul can't even say, men with men, males with males, but they're not acting like men. And so it's no surprise then that the next step is then to try to transition to another gender. Paul doesn't get into that here, obviously, but isn't that exactly what we're seeing in our culture? It's no surprise. All right, now, notice how the verse ends. It says, they receive in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. There are consequences for their sins, obviously. And Paul uses rather strong language here to make his point. And uh, it's often the case, people ask the question, is Paul saying that AIDS is is what uh, the consequence is? And I think we'd have to say that Paul would say, well, yeah, it is. 
But it's more than that. It isn't just uh, age and, and, and so forth. But any of the sexually transmitted diseases, any of the physical problems that come along with this kind of behavior, I think we could even include gay bashing here. Now, I am not saying that we should go and beat up gays or call them names. The Bible does not give us that permission. But when it happens, it is a consequence for the sin of homosexuality. Notice that Paul ends this verse, he says in the New King James words it here, which was due. God has to punish them for their sin. This sin, again, is worse than verses 24 and 25. This is a worse kind of sin, and he is going to punish their error. You know, it's often the case when you uh, uh, listen to people who have been uh, caught in the homosexual lifestyle or now the trans community, that they often talk about being enslaved um, and how miserable they are. They use the term gay, but they're not gay at all. They're not happy. They're miserable. And those who have come out of this lifestyle often speak very powerfully in this way. Think of Rosaria Butterfield and so forth. It's it's, uh, part of this punishment, the enslavement to this lifestyle. Now in the trans community, you have people coming out and saying, I was deceived. And I can't go back to the way I was. I have been castrated, either chemically or literally, and I can't change it. But again, it's not really a surprise, because we live in a moral world that God has made. Okay? And we will reap what we sow. And so when we exchange God for something else, God hands people over to sexual sins. Not everyone in an external way, but certainly all of us have sinned in the heart. And if that fails to get our attention, God then often hands us over to something worse. Here he mentions sexual perversions, homosexual behavior. Now let me just pause and say this. Sometimes we think here in Western PA, well, those are things that happen in New York City or L.A. or maybe Pittsburgh, but it didn't happen around here. This is not true. I grew up going to Grove City High School. There's sexual activity all over the place. And even homosexual activity. Remember, I graduated in 89, and the homosexual movement was really picking up steam in the 80s into the 90s. And there were guys doing those kind of things when I was a student. This isn't just out there. Hey, we have people that are cross-dressing and so forth, even in our communities. This isn't just out there. Again, Paul is saying, yes, this is punishment for sin, but it's also God's way of getting our attention. Now, obviously, we could talk about many other things. We could talk about S&M. We could talk about bestiality, orgies. We certainly could talk about pornography, sex toys, voyeurism. We could talk about pedophilia, rape, incest. We could talk about transgender, which I have a little bit, or drag, nudist behavior. I mean, the list goes on and on. These kinds of sins are just so pervasive. 
but we won't get into too much more. I've said a lot already. I want us to think here as we try to bring all this together uh, in various ways. First of all, we need to think about these things on an individual level. Okay? My sin, my relationship with God, God's wrath against me, my suppression of truth that leads possibly to some of these very sins, but maybe some others. And so maybe a more common sin for us in our little community here is a struggle with pornography, especially with smartphones and the internet and such. This is so much more uh, of of a problem. Well, if you get addicted to it, this is an indication that your relationship with God is not in a good place. You've not thanked him. You've established idols in your life. And he's punishing you for that. He's also going to punish you for the sin of pornography. But again, Paul is saying, let's go back to the beginning, the original problem. And so if this is a problem for you, hey, return to God. Spend time in his word. Be with his people. These kind of things. Honor him. Thank him. Remove these idols from your life. We can also speak of these things on a family level. There are some families where sexual sins are very prevalent. It's the same point. If your family struggles with these things, it's an indication your family's not in a good place with the Lord. He's punishing you by sending you these sexual sins. We can speak of these things on a church level. Uh, when I wrote this sermon right beforehand on Wednesday, I was reading an article about how church leaders were praising drag shows. You know, like, well, that's nuts. But, you know, that's an indication that their church is in a bad place in their relationship with God. In the PCA, we have the whole revoice issue, right? Saying it's, it's wrong to act on homosexual desires, but it's okay to have those desires. I can be a gay Christian. Well, that position is an indication that they've already turned away from God in some way. And that's a consequence. Those views are a consequence of the earlier and more basic sin. Obviously, in the Catholic Church, we're going to talk about pedophilia. We can talk about the televangelists with their secretaries. And on and on we can go. And these are consequences of churches not focusing on God. Maybe focusing on activities. Maybe focusing on false teaching. Israel did this too. Again, I'm of the view that when we read verses 18 to 32, we don't just say, well, that's what Gentiles do. Israel did it, and God gave them over to these very sins. Obviously, you think of their Baal worship. Remember the Benjamite and the Levite, the Benjamins, uh, Benjamites and the Levites and the concubine and all that that happened at the end of Judges. And certainly, we also need to think of this on a societal level. In Paul's day, in Greek culture, most men were bisexual. Because they didn't get married until they were 30, typically. And so they had prostitutes and slaves and boys until they got married. This was very common. Not as common in the Roman culture, but it happened there too. 
we live now in a society that is approaching that, aren't we? We've, some of us have lived through the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, which led to the homosexual revolution of the 80s and 90s. Today, we are told it's natural to be queer, and there's nothing wrong with it at all. Let me pause and just say this. If you look at verse 26, where it says, Women exchanged a natural use for what is against nature. You have those who claim to be Christians uh, saying, Well, yeah, it's natural for me as a woman who feels like a man to act like a man. That's natural for me. And if I go against that, I'm going against the way God made me. And so you'll hear arguments like this in the church. But you know, they're actually right. God did make them that way. As a punishment for either their sin or the sins of their parents. But we don't want to talk about those things. That's too hard for us. And yet, we have to. If we're going to understand Paul's point in the teaching of the scriptures. Today we live in a culture that says any sexual aberration is permitted as long as it's consenting. But all of these things are an indication that our culture has turned away from God. Now some will argue, were we actually a Christian nation from the beginning? Okay, we can debate some of that. But surely once the progressives took hold 125 years ago, we've been going in a very, very different direction than we did before that. If we think even just after World War II, our culture came to the point where we thought we didn't need God anymore. The rise of secular society. Remember, pinup girls preceded the sexual revolution. Do you see the point? God is giving our society over to these sins because our society in general has rejected him. There is a societal component here, not just an individual one. Or a family or church one. And so Paul wants us to see when we commit these sins, God is unhappy. And he's going to punish us for committing those sins. But he wants us to see even more. These sins are an indication of an earlier sin. And God is judging you with these kinds of sins or the church, or your family, or society. Okay? And so we can uh, ignore his clarion call, or we can use it as a wake-up call to repent and return to God. Not to activities, not to right doctrine, okay? not to moral things, but to God himself, ultimately. And restore that relationship with him. And so if you have fallen prey to these sins that we've seen in these four verses. Have you heard God's call? He wants you to come back to him. But maybe there are many of us who have not fallen prey to these sins. Well, Paul won't let us get off. We got verses 28 to 32. And he's, he's going to get all of us, as it were. Let me end by addressing one uh, additional point here. When we're talking about sexual things, 
Obviously, we also have to do, uh, have to address um, when these things are done by force. And I debated whether or not to say anything, but let me say it in this way. When people are sexually abused by others, it's not by their choice, whether rape or incest or molestation or whatever. I think Paul would uh, answer questions about this by saying, I'm not done yet. Verses 28 to 32 speaks about hatred toward our neighbor. And so it isn't just those who consciously choose to act in these ways. But there are other people who are going to force themselves. And this also is a consequence. God's wrath manifested for our prior sins. Okay? This is a hard truth. And a truth our culture refuses to address. And many in the church will refuse to address. In no way would I say Paul is saying this, nor am I saying that uh, it's somehow a good thing or it's deserved in, in the sense that we might normally think of. But we do need to remember that any terrible thing that happens in our lives, whether it's sexual abuse or it's an accident or some health problem, whatever it is, we must wrestle with the hard truth that in the end I do deserve these things. Because I'm a sinner. And I deserve far worse things than have happened or will happen in my life. I deserve every rotten thing in this world to happen to me because I'm a terrible sinner. And so are you. And this is not something we really want to admit. And yet it is the teaching of the scriptures. Why did God have me molested as a child? Why did God have me raped as a teenager? Why did God have me go through this hard thing in life? I mean, these are hard questions. But in the end, the answer is the same. I'm a sinner, and I deserve his wrath. But again, that's not the whole story. God does punish us for our sin, either our specific sins or just because we live in a sinful world. I'm a sinner and maybe not something specific I have done. Okay. But God also uses this to get our attention, to return us to him, to draw us to himself. It may seem like he's some cosmic masochist, but again, we're sinners. And he has every right to do it in this way. I know this is a very difficult topic, and I do not want to minimize it in any way. But I think it's this direction we need to go to answer these questions and find peace as we wrestle with these things. All right, well, much more to say, obviously. Hopefully I've said enough in the right ways. And so next time, uh, we'll step on a few more toes. Let's pray together. Our Father, God, we thank you again for your word. And and certainly sometimes your word is not very uh, enjoyable. It's hard for us. 
We don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to talk about sin in these ways. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to consider the fact that we are worse than we really think we are. Um, But we do thank you for your word and making it clear to us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to accept these truths, that you would help us to recognize how wretched we are, that it may turn us to you, that we would not run away, that we would not become angry, that we would not become hardened, but we pray, Lord, that you would use these uh, temporal wraths to get our attention, that we might be restored to you. As we sang earlier, David, you did that very thing. Uh, You you handed him over to sin with Bathsheba and even to murder, and you got his attention. We pray, Lord, you do the same with us, that we might return to you in, in deep fellowship and communion. We pray, Lord, that you would um, uh, be merciful and bring, bring healing in these ways, especially for those of us who have experienced sexual sin or maybe even sexual abuse. We pray for your healing, for your encouragement. But uh, again, Lord, we just uh, pray that you would work in us, that you would inform our minds and our lives as we wrestle with these things. And so, Lord, we um, are thankful that um, though you treat us as we deserve in many ways, you don't in many, many other ways. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you especially for Christ and restoring us to yourself through his perfect life and atoning death. And so we pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.